and welcome to the Sporting History Podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sports History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This episode we'll be hearing from Ian Adams who gave a paper in the BSSH uh, Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series um, hosted by the IHR earlier this week and Ian will be talking about the history of tug of war and especially uh, tug of war in America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you want to catch up with future IHR and BSSH Sport and Leisure History seminars, you can find the schedule on the IHR's website, which is history.ac.uk. Our next seminar will be given by Malcolm McLean, and he'll be talking about settler sports and indigenous sports in New Zealand in the 20th century, and he'll be giving that paper on the Monday, the 18th of November at 6pm. And like I said, if you pop along to the IHR's website, you can find all the details there and you can register for the uh, Zoom meeting. But now I'm handing over to Ian, who's going to give his paper. Well, I'm going to skip the introduction, Ian. Um, How bizarre is this? Yeah, Um, except to say that you uh, completed your PhD and and you've worked extensively on uh, sports history. Um, Some people might have seen you at our conference in August in Twickenham. Um, but yeah, take it away. Um, you've got the floor now. Okay, sorry about this. Right, this paper investigates the rise and decline of idiosyncratic forms of tug of war, which evolved in the United States in the late 19th century and in essence faded away during the first decade of the 20th century. The research has been desk based, utilizing academic texts, international national governing body websites, and digitized newspapers. The paper is an offshoot of an ongoing project examining the tug of war at the 1908 Olympic Games being undertaken by myself and Luke Harris. That won't change. There we go. The genesis of tug of war is lost in antiquity with artistic and archaeological evidence of various forms across the ancient world. Its sporting origins are variously ascribed to Greece around 500 BC, to the Northern European power games of the first millennium, and to the courts of the Chinese emperors. The modern name for the sport stems from the old Norse word toga, meaning draw, drag or pull, and the old German word vera, meaning strife. One of the prevalent origin stories of the modern codified sport places it as a survivor of the old rustic sports through the heavy athletics of the Highland Games. The earliest Highland Games predate recorded history, but a reference was made to the Games in the time of King Malcolm III in the 11th century. Traditionally, the game's heavy events included the cable and sheave tosses, the stone foot, the hammer and weight throws, and the throwing the weight over the bar. The tug of war entered the Highland Games at a later date, probably in the mid to late late 18th century. The games received a significant boost in popularity when the Braemar gathering was attended by Queen Victoria in 1848. She showed a keen interest in the athletics, even awarding the hill race winner, Lewis McGregor, for more than five pounds. By this time, she'd fallen in love with the Highlands and her endorsement of the games made national news and led to an explosion of Highland games across the nation. Her escort during the first visit to Balmoral and the Braemar gathering was provided by a detachment of the 93rd Regiment of Foot, the Sutherland Highlanders. Sometime between 1848 and 1873, This regiment introduced the tug of war into the Army's Highland Brigade sports. The Hampshire Telegraph reported that the Highland Brigade sports in Aldershot 
on September 27th of June 1874 took place in front of over 5,000 spectators, with over 600 brought down on a special train from London. It noted that of all the sport which seemed to excite the most interest amongst the spectators was the tug of war. In these games, the rope was placed across an artificial ditch, the object being to pull their opponents into the water. Sadly, this illustration of those games does not show the tug of war. Later that summer at the Woolwich Garrison Sports on the 18th and 19th of August, the Sutherland Highlanders introduced a codified form of the sport. The Woolwich Gazette noted that some 10,000 people attended these games, and a great many persons came down from London to see the new game of tug of war which was for the first time introduced by the 93rd Regiment. The tug of war concluded the sports and the Gazette reported it was a very exciting and amusing affair, though the water ordeal was dispensed with at the request of the competitors, who objected that it deteriorated their pulling powers. Instead, a chalk mark was drawn between the two teams and the aim was to drag their opponents across the line. Previously, the tug of war had been practiced in army sports events as what Tony Collins termed as an informal activity, often the two teams pulling across an eight-foot-wide water-filled ditch, and the losing team was supposed to receive a ducking. But most reports indicate that participants let go of the rope before this occurred. In the new codified form, the centre of the rope was marked with a scarlet tape above the centre line on the ground, and then white tapes were fixed six feet each side of this centre mark. To win, a team had to pull their opponent's white mark over the centre line a pull of about six feet. These rules were seemingly accepted across the army. The sport rapidly increased in popularity, especially in regular and voluntary force army units. Highland gatherings and other sport events were also gaining tug of war. A search of newspapers shows a significant proliferation of tug of war competitions from 1875 across the whole of Britain. These early competitions were often dominated by military teams. For example, there's the prestigious Northern Gathering at Inverness was won by the Invernessshire Highland Rifle Volunteers in 1878. This adoption by Highlanders may have increased the speed and breadth of the spread of the sport internationally, as at this time the British Army contained at least 20 regular Scottish regiments, and most, if not all, established their own Highland Games, which they took around the world wherever they were garrisoned. In 1880, the 72nd and 92nd Regiments of Foot held their games at Lahore after two years hard and distinguished campaigning in Afghanistan. Just as the army spread tug of war across the nation and empire, other Scots worked and migrated around the world, taking their games with them to celebrate their heritage and making the Highland Games probably Scotland's biggest cultural export. Retiring soldiers and sailors took the sport into civilian life, proliferating it through work and recreational spaces by 1875, it was a mainstay of sports days and galas throughout Britain, with ardent police, military, factory and sports club teams. It had become the chief attraction of military sports days and civilian club sports events as well. The Amateur Athletic Club hosted a meeting at their Lilybridge grounds in November 1875 that included the tug of war. Bell's Live noted that the tug of war featured 25 teams, with military teams the most numerous. In the final, the 10th Royal Arsenal Kent Artillery Volunteer Corps defeated the 2nd Surrey Croydon Rifles. The newspaper noted that old-fashioned athletes voted it rather a nuisance, but it certainly was greatly appreciated by the public. For the reporter, the only thing to carpet being that some of the officials and most of the spectators appeared to be taking greater interest in the various tugs than in the running. 
Demands for commonly accepted rules grew as the sport proliferated across the nation. And following its formation in April 1880, the Amateur Athletic Association promulgated rules and regulations for athletics, and those for the tug of war were published in April 1887. These rules stipulated that teams must have an equal number of competitors. A centre tape should be fixed to the rope, and six feet either side of this centre mark, further marks are fixed to the rope. These marks should be replicated by lines marked on the ground. At the start, all competitors must be outside of the sidelines and the rope taut. The start should be by word of mouth, and during the pull, no competitor's foot can go beyond the centre line. No competitor can touch the ground with any part of their person but their feet. No hole could be made in the ground before the start, and no competitor could wear boots or shoes with any projecting nails, springs, or points of any kind. The pull would be won when one team pulled the opposition's side tape there over their own sideline, a pull of some 12 feet. I've not yet been able to identify whether the rules promulgated by the Southern Highlanders influenced these 3A rules, but the similarity is striking. Hopefully visits in the near future the Prince Consort Library in Aldershot to peruse the Army Sport Board records, Stirling Castle to scrutinise the Southern Highlanders archives, and to the National Archive, Athletics Archive at the Cadbury Research Library may be enlightening on these points. In October 1889, the Strathallan Highland Games Committee arranged a Highland gathering at the Paris Universal Exposition, which is one of three monster performances held at Buffalo Bill's Wild West Camp. Baron de Coubertin was amongst the audience and witnessed the Glasgow Police tug-of-war team defeat all comers. Some Highland historians believe that these exhibition games were responsible for Coubertin, including the hammer throw and the shot put in the Olympics. Coubertin observed tug-of-war on other occasions, such as at an Olympian event put on for him by Dr. William Penny Brooks at Much Wenlock in 1890. In March 1891, Coubertin attended the first sports festival at Albertus Magnus College at Arcule, where his friend Père Henri Didon was headmaster and the tug-of-war was on the schedule. Apparently, Didon used the phrase Citius Altius Sportius to describe the foundation and raison d'etre of the athletics in his opening address of the Games. However, despite the new International Olympic Committee agreeing in 1894 that athletics were to be the centerpiece of the first modern Olympics at Athens in 1896, tug of war was not included. Kubitan was against the inclusion of team events, so he believed the Olympics should demonstrate how well an, an individual could excel. The Greek organizing committee agreed to Kubitan's suggestion that international rules should be used where they existed, such as in cycling, where they did not, well-established rules which had already been used internationally should be utilised. In athletics, the track events are used for the French governing body, the USFA rules, and the field events were under 3A's rules. Following the completion of these games, plans were made for the second Olympics in Paris to accompany World's Fair, the 1900 International Universal Exhibition. A wide variety of sports events were scheduled and Coubertin and the expedition athletic director, Daniel Merrillon, agreed to call the track and field section the second Olympic Games. But on the 9th of November, 1898, the USFA announced that they were solely in charge of sports and athletic events at the exhibition, and Coubertin was ousted as the chairman of the organizing committee of the second Olympics. The new organizing committee announced new events and venues. Athletics moved to the grounds of the Racing Club de France in the Bois de Vol-Roulon, and the tug of war was added to the program. I've not yet been able to ascertain why Paul Escudio, the president of the subcommittee in charge of sport, introduced tug of war. Again, USFA rules were used for the track events and the 3A's rules for the field events, 
including tug of war, which it was decided would feature teams of six. Two teams entered the event, one from the Racing Club de France and one of American field event athletes. A scheduling clash led to the American team withdrawing, but some Swedish and Danish athletes offered to participate as a combined Scandinavian team and were accepted. They defeated the French and later, after the tug of war and field events had concluded, consented to a challenge from the Americans. The Americans won the first pull, but when they ran into difficulties in the second pull, other American athletes joined in. And according to a Swedish newspaper, whose name I cannot pronounce, an unpleasant incident followed, which nearly ended in a common fight. Even today, some records show America as having won the tug of war in Paris, with Sweden, Denmark second, and France third, or alternatively, America first and France second. Other reports note the defeat of the Scandinavians and acknowledge the American match as an exhibition pool after the event had finished. Co Cotton, ex-president and Henri Tug of War International Federation president, observed that from these Olympics, Tug of War was basically the same format as now. The American Tug of War governing body website notes that the rules which were used as international rules in the 1900 games, which as you may remember now is based on the three A's, still exists today, having undergone very slight modifications. A careful examination of the photograph reveals the center tape on the rope and the center line under the judge's walking stick and the two side lines just in front of the first athlete of each team. The 1904 games were held at St. Louis, Missouri, accompanying the Louisiana Purchase Expeditions World Fair. James E. Sullivan, the secretary of the Amateur Athletic Union of the United States, the AAU, was the chief of physical culture for the exposition, and the, and the athletics were to be held under the AAU rules. The AAU had been formed in 1888, in essence, as the national governing body for a number of amateur sports, including track and field. The 1904 Olympic Games were virtually an American club championships due to the lack of international participants, and the AG Spalding Company was awarding a cup for the athletic club, scoring the greatest number of points. Bill Mallon, considered 12 nations competed, although most of the international athletes were exhibitors and their nation's pavilions from their nation's pavilions at the exposition. However, Sullivan concluded that the athletics brought together the greatest athletes of the world. The New York Times opined that one of the most interesting contests in connection with the Olympic Games will be the international tug of war. The rules published in the programme Note that the event would be pulled on dirt and that the ground was dug up so the athletes could get some sort of a hole with their feet. No belts, no spikes were allowed, and there was no weight limit placed on the teams of five athletes. Each pull was limited to five minutes, and the winners would be the team gaining six feet on their opponents. If no team had achieved six feet and after the time expired, the team having advantage wins the pull. It further noted that foreign teams can be made up of residents of the United States and Canada. The New York Times article concluded that in Paris, the American team consisting of weight throwers had no trouble pulling the representatives of other countries. Six teams entered the Olympic competition, four from American athletic clubs, one of four exhibitors from their pavilion, and a Greek team, probably made up of first and second generation Americans. Both the Panhellenic and the Boer teams were eliminated in the first round, and Milwaukee Athletic Club defeated New York Athletic Club in the final. New York scratched from the second place tournament, leaving West St. Louis Turnverein A as silver medals and West St. Louis Turnverein B in third place. Following the conclusion of the event, Edgar Baker, the trainer of Chicago's Columbia Knights Athletic Association, 
protested to the AAU because the Milwaukee team was actually composed of his athletes from the Columbia Knights Athletic Association. His complaint was supported by West St. Louis Turnbrine, who dem demonstrated that the Milwaukee men had revealed to them that they came from Chicago and were not actually members of the Milwaukee Athletic Club. The chair of the Olympic Committee hearing the protest, W.H. Liginga, was also president of Milwaukee AC, and the matter seems to have proceeded no further. Although no official final report of the Games have written, what is often taken to be an equivalent written by Charles Lucas noted at the tug of war, this event should be dropped from the programme, as there is every possibility of athlete club presidents grabbing at any talent that they can get in order to win, to win, no matter whether they're members of the team, be amateurs or professionals. As you've seen, there are several photographs extant of the 1904 Olympic tug of war. Now they show either all of the athletes or the majority of the athletes sitting or lying in the dug up earth, bracing against depressions made from their feet. All of the events at the Olympics of 1904 were supposed to be under AA rule, AAU rules, but at this time, AAU tug of war rules stipulated tugging on cleats made of wood. The tug only had to gain three feet for victory. The rules promulgated in the program appear to be those of the AAU's predecessor, the National Association of Amateur Athletes, the NAAA, a point I'll return to later. Proceeding the next Olympics at Athens in 1906, Greek officials consulted with sports administrators in Stockholm, Copenhagen, Paris, Berlin and London to inform themselves on the rules of the most important sport disciplines. Sport rules were generally not yet internationally unified. And international judges tended to interpret their events rules differently. The tug of war, of war regulations published by the Athens Organizing Committee was the three A's rules with the slight changes that eight man teams were stipulated and the measurements like 1900 were converted to metric. 11 teams entered, but only four, Germany, Austria, Sweden, and a Greek team participated. Mallon commented, that the competing nations apparently gave little thought to the tug of war. Most of them simply selecting a team to compete in this competition by choosing their strongest athletes from among their gymnasts and weight throwers in the track and field. The winning German team was selected on the boat traveling to Greece for the Olympics. The Greek team won silver and the Swedes bronze. Co Coran observed that for the first time in the Olympics, the tug of war teams competed in the regular eight persons per team configuration. In essence, the sport was analogous to today's global sport. The AAU were not influenced by the use of the three A's tug of war rules at the Olympics Proceed of 1900, 1906, and the AAU rules of 1907 were identical to those of 1891, the exception that tug of, rule of war was now rule 27 rather than rule 14. Most noteworthy disparity from the three A's was that the event had to be pulled athletes braced against wooden cleats, adhesive substances, belts, body shields and gloves were allowed, and the anchor man could pass the rope around his body. The start would be signaled by a starting pistol, and there was no rule limiting ground contact to the feet. Where did these differences actually originate? As previously noted, Scottish rural sports were spread around the world by immigration, particularly between 1750. And 1850. Caledonian societies appeared in America as early as 1729, with the St Andrews Society of Charleston and other St Andrews societies soon appearing, including Philadelphia in 1747 and New York in 1756. 
The first games in America were possibly the Americano Scottish sportive meeting of the Highland Society of New York in 1836. I suspect that earlier gatherings occurred, but as yet, I've not found any evidence of them. Further clubs were soon founded, and by the start of the Civil War in April 1861, at least four Caledonian clubs across America were holding annual games. Between the end of the American Civil War in 1865 and the end of the century, there was significant growth in Caledonian clubs. In 1867, what may have been the first international Open Highland Games were held by the New York Caledonian Club at Jones's Wood, Manhattan, between Canadian and American clubs. The increasing American interest in sport, partially stimulated by these Scottish gatherings, necessitated the development of organizational structures to standardize rules and policies and to handle disputes. In 1870, the North American Caledonian Association was formed and standardized the rules for its games, including tug of war, though I have yet to find details of these regulations. Jarvey makes the point that by the time the North American Caledonian Association was formed, the Highland Games were already a focal point of emigre reunions. It's worth noting that by this time, professional Highland Games athletes were appearing in America. Donald Dinney himself appearing at the New York Caledonian Club Games of 1870. Concurrently, American upper and middle class sportsmen were founding their own clubs, one of the earliest being the New York Athletic Club, the NYAC, in 1868. This club called upon the New York Caledonian Club to assist them, and the first club coach was George Goldie, a well-known Scottish athlete. The NYAC issued its first challenge to the New York Caledonian Club and advertised the match as America versus Scotland, but tug-of-war was not featured. In the early 1870s, the NYAC began formulating and publishing rules for all track and field events, including a tug-of-war in 1879. According to Janssen's History of American Amateur Athletics, tug-of-war was a standard event at athletic meets by 1877, before these initial tug-of-wars were written and promulgated by the NYAC. However, its format varied. Military matches commonly had six aside, and amateur events ten aside. A survey of American newspapers reveals the term tug-of-war was being used from 1734 in military, political and legal stories, and then in tightly contested baseball games, rowing, track and horse racing. And annoyingly, in the 1830s, Britain, Britain and America, there was a plethora of racehorses named tug-of-war. Despite Janssen's assertion, only two tug-of-war events were reported in 1876 in American newspapers currently digitally archived in the public domain. Soldiers at Fort Shaw, Montana, competed in, in their Christmas Day festivities of 1875 and at the 10th annual Brooklyn Caledonian Games, which the Brooklyn Daily Times termed a novelty, of, albeit one of the most interesting exhibitions of the day. This event was won by the Caledonians, defeating a Turnbrine team. The teams were chosen at random on the day from their clubs, used a 74-foot rope and pulled each other until one or the other succumbed to the superior strength of their opponents. In 1877, the New York Times had had one report on tug-of-war. In 1879, the paper included 41 reports featuring military, police, fire department competitions, international challenges, sports club meets, internal company and factory competitions, such as the Western Union night shift against the day shift at their annual sports day, inter- and intra-governmental department challenges, such as New York against Staten Island, educational institutions, for instance, the Stevens Institute annual games, they also featured amateur and professional pools, often at the same meet. Professional teams usually featured one professional athlete per team, often as a guest star. The same year, 1877, 
Yale University's athletic games included a new feature so popular in the English sports, the tug of war. The sport was rapidly increasing in popularity. The proliferation of reports of tug of war in America was two years after the similar proliferation in Britain. After their publication, the NYAC track and field rules were generally accepted at important meets in America, including the tug of war. Tug of war was the only team competition at track and field meets, and teams were often from clubs or societies such as Turnbrine, Caledonian societies, and from specific ethnic immigrants, for example, representing individual Irish counties. Newspaper articles, such as in the New York Daily Herald, reveal that 10 athletes per side for amateur pools was the norm, and the rules specified a one and a half inch rope, a mark made on the center between the teams, this mark positioned over a center of the area between the two teams. Two side creases had to be marked 12 feet from the center, the winning team pulled the rope center mark over their side crease, a pull of 12 feet. No spikes were allowed on the footwear and no holes could be dug before the start. In 1876, the NYAC held the first annual American Amateur Athletic National Championships and introduced 4v4 tug of war at the second event in 1877, which NYAC themselves won against two other entrants, the Scottish American Athletic Club and the Turnbrine Verbarts Elizabeth of New Jersey. By 1878, the NYAC found the burden of holding these national championships too much and called on other clubs to, to help through an association. This led to the establishment of the National Association of Amateur Athletics, the NAAA, to organize these national championships. In essence, a national governing body for athletics. The NAAA adopted the NYAC rules, which bear a marked resemblance to the three A's rules promulgated eight years later. One has to wonder how much both owed to the propagation of unwritten rules through Highland gatherings and then the North American Caledonian and the Southern Highlands codifications. Only two days after the press described the NYAC tug of war rules, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported on the NYAC meet at Gilmore's Garden on January 3rd and 4th, 1879. It noted that the tug of war excited the assemblage to a high pitch, and that although strength and weight were important, there's considerable room for strategy. The contest between the Irish teams of New York and Greenpoint was marked by the Greenpointers pulling the rope center marker onto their side. Then they literally lay down to their work and were still there at the end of a 15 minute time limit, winning the first prize. Has to remember that the NYAC and the NAA rules did not forbid body contact with the ground. This tactic was clearly influential, as at a large athletics meeting at Gilmore's Garden in March, the New York Daily Herald commented, while in the tug of war there is clearly a wide field for good generalship, is it an evident mistake to allow any two teams 20 minutes on a stretch? Five would be ample. Instead of so much lying around, still, there should be a constant succession of heaves, as the New York Athletic men showed last night. The same paper noted that the Independent Athletic Club met in July and the heavyweight tug of war proved a great struggle of the day and produced considerable excitement. As the team lay down to their work, the crowd broke through the rope barriers and the crowd crowded close to watch their movements. By the beginning of the 1880s in America, tug of war was a sport conducted lying down. By this time, several Northeastern colleges such as Harvard, Yale, Princeton had added tug of war to their intra and extramural sport programs. Reflecting on the style used in these early years, an 1887 article in the Harvard Daily Student newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, noted that tug of war teams were composed of four men who aimed to gain the most rope possible during the five minute pull. 
Before the start, the men leaned all their weight on the rope preparatory to a heave. The referee pressed the centre of the rope down upon a chalk mark on the floor. Both teams were told to get ready, and at the word, the rope was released, and they sprang back with a jump, heaving all together. Whichever team had the most perfect system of heaves generally won, bracing their feet on the rosined floor. Tricks were constantly devised to throw the opposite team off its balance and drag them across. Irish teams of New York, New York and Greenpoint were marked by the green pointers pulling the rope. Oh, sorry, these pulls were said to be exciting as the severest pulls of today. But a much greater element of luck was then entering into them, according to the Crimson. In 1886, the NAAA issued new regulations for outdoor tug of war, stating that the ground should be loosened to a depth of six inches for a width of three feet and a length of 80 or 90 feet. No spikes can be worn or footing holes may be made before the start. The ground should be divided into two by a plank placed edwards and flush with the surface. White lines should be drawn 12 feet from and parallel to this board. The centre of the rope is marked with a white string. If a team pulls the string to their 12-foot mark, they are the victors, a 12-foot pull. Very often there was no need for these lines as most teams could gain nowhere near 12 feet in the time allowed. The Crimson described these matches as where the teams borrowed holes for their feet pulled furiously covered themselves with dust. These appear to be the rules that were used for 1904 Olympics and note in this picture a plank across the pool just in front of the crouching official although it's hardly flush with the surface and then there are actually these 12-foot marks which are uh, you can help also see by poles that were put up, vertical poles that were put up as well. However, sometime before 1880 another style evolved which allowed the athletes to brace themselves against wooden cleats. This was adopted by the AAU on its formation in 1888, and these rules stated that the cleats be made of wood, be at least four inches thick, six inches high, and 22 inches long. Each team's cleat should be at least six feet six inches apart, and the distance from the centre of the rope to the first cleat on each side be not less than six feet. The cleats have to be set on edge and bolted down. In the 1880s, the tug of war was added to the Intercollegiate Association meeting. Amongst the colleges with teams were Yale, Harvard, Dartmouth, Williams, Worcester and Columbia, the first champions. That year, Harvard installed cleats in their Hemingway Gymnasium in order for the team to utilise the new tug of war form, which, according to the Crimson, is the most eagerly awaited event on the programme of a college athletic meeting. The Crimson noted the object remained to gain the most rope possible during five minutes. However, the article claimed that the real science of the tug of war was introduced in 1882, when a belt was introduced for the anchorman. This meant that the strain on the rope was made constant and could be increased at the will of the anchorman. An important feature of this new technical and scientific form was for the teams to drop as quickly as possible, the best teams giving a heave as they go down and gaining several inches thereby. The Crimson stated that there were two ways of lying on the rope. The Harvard men pulled with one leg across the rope with the body resting on its side. The back is kept straight and most of the heave is with the legs. At the word of the anchor, all four go down for a hold and the anchor makes a new knot and then all four go back with the heave. In the same year as the Crimson's history of the tug of war in 1887, Mr. Charles Morrill, a former member of the Dartmouth College team, wrote a widely syndicated article on the toughest test of muscle in the realm of sport. He remarked that of all winter and summer sports, tug of war excited the most popular interest there is hardly one that calls for more strength and endurance. He opined that the exercise has advanced a great deal during recent years 
under the fostering influence of college athletes and regimental gymnasts. The major development was that both styles of pulling in America involved the athletes lying on the ground from the very start. These two styles were termed the Dartmouth or Farmer's Pull, used in outdoor competitions, and the Harvard Pull using cleats. It appears that both styles were in common use in America. Whichever was used depended upon the host organization. Dartmouth continued their own style until 1887 when they introduced cleats into their gymnasium. In the Dartmouth style, a hole was dug in the ground for each competitor in the shape of a right angle triangle, so the competitor's feet were braced against the perpendicular wall. In the Harvard style, the athletes brace themselves against their wooden cleats. The contest is begun with both teams standing on their cleats, the anchor standing in such a way you can sit down at once, and the others with one foot braced against the cleat and the hands on the rope, prepared to fall full length at the moment the crystal shot is heard, as the side that gets down quickest may get an advantageous start. In both styles, the winning team was determined by either pulling the other team out of their seats or off their cleats, or by having moving move the central tape towards themselves at the time limit. For example, in 1880 at Madison Square Garden, during the largest athletic meeting ever held in New York, Captain Gallagher's dry goods team pulled Stratton Storm's tobacco team to their feet in 30 seconds. The tug-of-war events were taking place on the smoothly polished dancing floor with strong cleats nailed down for men to brace their feet again. Can't imagine the Blackpool Tower Ballroom allowing the hammering of cleats into their floor. The Harvard style was also used outside with wooden platforms, as we can see here in the, in the image, uh, into which the, the cleats could be bolted. This became common at parks and roller rings during the 1881-75 hour O'Leary Harriman walking match at Brooklyn Rink, a tug of war for the rowing club was held. In round two, the Electric Lights Rowing Club pulled the Black Rocks Rowing Club to their feet in 12 seconds. In the final Celtic Rowing Club won by moving the centre mark two inches into their side and holding fast bravely during the five tedious minutes that remained. The immense audience went into ecstatics over the tug and great enthusiasm for, for a few minutes, cheer after cheer and shout after shout, read the air, said the papers. Other reports expressed misgivings about the amount of time being taken without much happening. And the event organiser were reducing time limits from the normal one hour of the 1870s to a common 10 minutes or in colleges, six minutes on cleats. Large crowds were drawn to the sport throughout the 1880s. In May 1880, a competition between the police and fire departments of New Jersey drew 7,000 spectators with the winners, the police being awarded with a silver pitcher and goblets. Throughout the mid to the late 1880s, tug of war remained ubiquitous in the newspapers as challenges were issued between army units, police and fire squads, industrial and commercial teams, sports clubs, etc. Novelty events were common with many roller rinks holding competitions on skates, rowing teams on the water and swimming clubs in natatoriums. There were events at all levels with weight categories and varieties of team sizes. Cash challenges were often issued through newspapers to specific opponents or as open challenges. However, even as the Harvard cleat style of tug of war was becoming more popular, other misgivings were being expressed. In March 1882, the Crimson deliberated the question that will be naturally asked, is not such a continuous and severe strain dangerous? Undoubtedly, it is, according to the several authorities, who say there is a danger of man severely straining himself during a continuous pull of 10 minutes. In his autobiography, Ellery Clark, the 1896 Olympic champion in the high jump and the broad jump, reminisced of watching the Harvard team as a child. Each team lay prone upon the floor, 
feet braced against huge wooden cleats and straining upon the rope until their faces were purple and the veins stood out upon their swollen necks. In 1883, even as the Crimson look forward to some very exciting contests, as the proper method of pulling becomes better known, i.e. their method on cleats, there was a motion at the annual intercollegiate convention to remove the event from their programme. This was defeated 8-4. Morrill had concluded his article proclaiming the scientific and advent technical advantages of the American styles by saying, this competition is of not much use as an exercise, is more directed to exhibiting and acquiring strength, and is rough, hard, trying work. It is also a very manly sport and will doubtless continue to hold its well-established somewhat subordinate position in the realms of sport. By 1888, both Dartmouth and Harvard styles had resulted in numerous serious injuries. The Harvard Review of Sport reported, in view of the fact that men engaged in the tug of war complain of the severe strain, that sport needs to be investigated. The 1888 Intercollegiate Championship was won by Harvard. Opinion on the entertainment value of the sport was also divided. Two New York Tribune articles had opposing views. In January 1889, one reported on an AAU event and concluded that its coverage of the tug of war, but who cares to see a tug of war? The name conveys the idea of a royal battle of some sort, but it is a misnomer. Of all athletic contests, it is the tamest, never arousing the slightest interest in anybody of the participants who recline against cleats, yank a rope and grunt. Another report in February on the 22nd Regiment Games concluded that trials of strength in the shape of the ever popular tug of war are ever popular. In March 1889, the world newspaper owned by Joseph Pulitzer, who had expanded its readership to over 350,000 by emphasizing sport to attract the working classes, commented, pulling on a tug of war team is just about the very worst form of athletic exercise a man can indulge in. It's particularly injurious to young men whose bones have not yet thoroughly knit who have not yet attained their complete development. The report opined that tug of war tried to increase strength by straining every muscle and blood vessel in their bodies and destroying the men's vitality. A.R. Crane of Harvard's class of 84 was recalled in the article. He had strained himself in his senior year in a fast pull and died within a few months. It pointed out that weightlifting and tug of war contests were forbidden in gymnasiums conducted, quote, on common sense principles. The newspaper continued its campaign over the following months, claiming the very worst form of so-called athletic exercise ever devised is the barbarity euphemistically known as tug of war. It recognized that the old fashioned method which involved teams of men standing and pulling on the earth spread and lessened the strain as it was impossible to secure a firm purchase. This was not so ruinous to physical strength as the method of straining and wrenching the human frame in vogue today in which teams lie on board supplied with cleats and evenly matched teams pull for five minutes so the strain of each man's physique is very great, particularly where there is partisan rivalry. Here, we're pulling for honour, a man is bound to pull till his heart stands still, even though muscles may give way and tendons snap. Later world stories cited professors and athletes as supporting the campaign to ban the sport and further claim that diligent inquiry amongst experienced athletic trainers a careful canvas of athletic organisations revealed that they were aware of the sport's injurious effects, but were unwilling to make a stand against it for fear of making themselves unpopular with the young athletes who like it best of all sports. The world continued to report, of course, on tug-of-war matches and advertise upcoming tournaments. 
the New York Times defended the support, asserting that the most modern method of pulling on cleats and sitting astride the rope, backs perfectly straight, assures a natural pull with the legs and shoulders rather than the back. In 1880, the Crimson noted that the subject of intercollegiate tug of war has been pretty thoroughly discussed during the past year or two. And the question as to its continuance as an intercollegiate sport has been brought up more than once. Several years ago, the sport was very popular, but as its really dangerous character is becoming recognized, it lost to a great degree its place among athletes. Dr. Sargent in past years has been faithfully quoted as opposed to, to this sport on the ground of extreme danger. There is any number of medical men who have declared themselves very strongly for a like opinion. Dudley Sargent was the director of the Harvard Hemingway Gymnasium from 1879 to 1919. The professor of physical culture at Cornell, Dr. Hitchcock, considered the sport to have immediate and remote injurious effects and emphatically favors its abandonment. In 1892, the Harvard delegation of the Intercollegiate Annual Conference introduced a motion on the grounds it was productive of much injury to the contestants. The motion was carried 10 to 5, and the sport finally dropped from the Intercollegiate Championships, being replaced by bicycle race racing. In January, January 1891, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle declared it is a decided sign of progress to note how rapidly that senseless competition, known as tug of war, is dropping from sight. It continued the sport lacked headwork the prime requisite for competition, and this foolish and dangerous exhibition only required two brains, those of the anchors. The paper claimed the sport had the greatest number of casualties for a game using so few men, and noted that the cleats were being turned into kindling wood in many gymnasiums. However, despite the sport suffering a popular decline in the last decade of the century, it remained a mainstay activity at community, fire and police departments, picnics and with military units, particularly in its old fashioned form. The AAU and Dartmouth Stars continued in use. A World Championship was held as part of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, with the final being held on the Chicago baseball ground. The Zorro team of Cano winning. It would seem, looking at this, that the international squads were, in fact, Americans proud of their ancestry. In 1904, an old-fashioned challenge was issued by the silk and dress goods of the Broadway store to the winner of the department manager's tug of war match, the winning team to take all the gate receipts. The challengers declaring we're open for all side bets. We mean business. By 1910, the AO rules for tug of war had not changed and the event was still stipulated beyond cleats, but the two American technical forms were slowly fading away. In 1978, the United States Amateur Tug of War Association was formed using Tug of War International Federation, the international governing body rules. It joined TWIF in 1979 and participated in the 1980 World Championships for the first time. America has hosted three World Championships since joining TWIF. To conclude, the adoption and administration of Tug of War by organizations other than the traditional Caledonian societies, such as the IC4A, the NAAA and the AAU, remove the restriction that ground contact was limited to the feet, allowing the development of the reportedly more technical and scientific forms advocated by American colleges and the AAU. Oriard noted that some Americans viewed rugby as, as chaotic play, whereas American football was purposeful work, primitively physically primitive physicality compared to reason and order. Certain comments by college athletes draw the same points relating to the American forms of tug of war the old standing style used in Europe. The reported lack of fun in training in American colleges in American football bears similarities to college to a, to a college tug of war complaints at the same time. 
these forms seemingly cause more injuries and were arguably more boring to the spectator, though undoubtedly the sport was a social cultural activity in its heyday. Once removed from track and field programs of the colleges, these new forms began to peter out, perhaps lacking the necessary dynamism to attract the paying public, like American football or baseball were doing. The AAU's faith in its own exceptionalism and tug of war through at least 1910, despite an internationally accepted version being used at the 1900, 1906 and 1908 Olympics, indicates a certain obtuseness or perhaps American exemptionalism. As Norite and Parrish argue, American ideas of independence were revealed by reluctance to accept rules generated in the trolled elsewhere, particularly by the British. The widely syndicated 1888 articles of Charles Morrill eagerly extolled the virtues of this new superior American forms of the tug of war, so that the three A's fulfills the American exceptionalism view of the United States, differing qualitatively from other developed countries. Markowitz and Hellerman point out that America's major sports, baseball, American football and basketball, developed in relative isolation from external influences and were self-consciously American, filling the nation's sporting space. These sports, in a similar fashion to tug of war, which is evolving concurrently with American football, developed in close conjunction with the nation's colleges and universities in a manner distinctly different from other sporting cultures around the world, reinforcing national identity and exceptionalism. The tug of war probably originated in America in a similar manner to the other areas of the world through the Highland gatherings. However, its adoption by colleges, the NAAA and the AAU, allowed it to evolve in relative isolation. Cogliano pointed out that the history of American sports seems to embody the concept of American exceptionalism, and tug of war generally fits in with Markowitz and Hellman's definition. That concludes the paper. My apologies for the lack of camera. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much. It's really rich for that paper. I can see that some people.